have you ever felt great distress? I mean, I'm talking about deep inside of your soul. I think some of you can probably relate and know what I'm talking about. Have you ever felt as though your soul has a vice grip that is just so tight that you physically have a hard time breathing? Maybe you're distressed over your marriage, or maybe you're distressed over your children, or friendships, or your finances. Maybe you can't relate to this because you've never been distressed. Well, just wait, because you will. Maybe you're just too young, but it's coming. But I doubt that any of us have no idea what it means to feel distressed. And possibly you're here this morning and you really have enjoyed praising his name and hearing his word read and hearing his word prayed. And you honestly, you're trying to enjoy life. You really are trying to be thankful and enjoy the good blessings that God has given to you. You're trying to have fun, but you find yourself when you're trying to have a good time, it's as though it's these little spaces of good time that are really kind of compressed between the much larger struggles or, or sorrows that you have in your life. As we continue this morning in our series through Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to see how the people of God were greatly distressed. We're going to meditate on Nehemiah 9 and 10. We're going to begin reading in chapter 9, and we're going to actually jump towards the end of the chapter first so that we understand what precipitated the rest of the chapter and, and understand what led them to have this great sorrow. So let's pick up the context towards the end, verses 36 and 37, Nehemiah 9. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And this rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So God had restored his people back to Judea to Jerusalem had restored them to the land of promise from the exile in Babylon and he led them to rebuild the temple to rebuild the temple or I'm sorry the city walls and they're they're seeing all of this restoration that God is accomplishing and yet they're still under the authority of the Persian empire as they're saying here kings that are above us and rule over us and and they have to pay heavy taxes and so they're not even seeing the, the full benefit of their crops. And so they, in a very real sense, are still slaves. Maybe not like it was in Egypt, not that severe, but they're still not free. And it says they're in great distress. But it says why they're in great distress. It says because of our sin. They know that they deserve this. They've earned it, the way that they have not been faithful to their God, how they have not obeyed him. And so now they have deserved 
this judgment. Can you relate? Have you ever had calamity come upon you? Have you, have you ever had something very undesirable or very painful that you're going through? And if you're honest, there's no one to blame but yourself. That is where Israel was on this day. Experiencing, it says, great distress because of their own disobedience. And if you can't relate to that, again, one day you will. The question that we have to answer here from Nehemiah 9 and 10 is, how do you respond when your soul is experiencing great distress? Because it's going to happen if it's happening right now. The question is, how do we respond? Nehemiah 9 and 10 describes that we must cry out to our God. When we find ourselves in great distress, we must cry out to him. Let me give you the main idea of these two chapters, 9 and 10, and then we'll jump into a little bit more. The primary truth here is that we must respond to God's mercy with repentance and trust. So we must respond to God's mercy with repentance and trust in order to be restored and walk in obedience. So it begins with God's mercy. He's merciful. He's good to us. He loves us. And then we respond to him with repentance and trust. And the result is, in order that we can experience his restoration and then be able to walk in obedience. And so God the Father was merciful to send God the Son in order to make a way for us to be forgiven, to be restored back to our original purpose. To worship. He's actively accomplishing it in our lives today. See, a restored soul before God cannot be a sin-distressed soul. Hear me. A soul that is truly restored in God is a soul that cannot be sin-distressed. I mean, yes, we can have all kinds of external stressors, but we're walking in a way of obedience and it won't be over this habitual patterns of sinfulness. And so a restored soul is one that is truly engaged in worshiping the all-satisfying God. So that's what we want is to be worshiping an all-satisfying God. And then our soul, our lives will then walk in obedience to him. So how do we respond to him? What must happen? We're already seeing it here in the main idea, but let's look at this a little bit more closely. We're going to see what exactly leads to this restoration and how this applies to us today. Let's begin reading in Nehemiah now. Let's go to the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 5. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of, of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Cadmio, Shabaniah, Bani, 
Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Heshbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. In the midst of their great distress over their own sin, you see them here confessing their sin, and they're told to stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. This is incredible. So we saw last week how the seventh month was a very special holy month for Israel where there was feasting and rejoicing. Now the festivals are over and the people of God are, are reflecting on how they've been living. They're, they're recognizing their sin. And so they put on the sackcloth and they're fasting and put dirt on their heads as a way to show their true brokenness and their grief over their sin. And they spend their days with hearing God's word for three hours and then, and then confessing and worshiping for another three hours. And so there's a major focus here on hearing the word and on responding to him. Not denying their sin, but being very honest about it. Admitting and confessing their shortcomings. And I can just picture, I mean, can't you just imagine them just broken over their sin with their shoulders kind of slouched down and their, their heads low and their hearts so burdened over the weight of their sin, knowing that they have deeply hurt their loved ones with their sin and knowing that they have displeased their God in heaven. But then verse 5 is glorious. They're told in the middle of his brokenness, stand up and bless the Lord your God. Praise his glorious name, and he is exalted. Well, how do you do that? How do you stand up and praise God when you feel so broken over your sin, when you feel the weight of it? And how can God accept your worship when you've sinned against him? Because we serve the God of restoration. We serve a God who is mighty to save. We serve a God who desires to give you a restored soul that is able to and that longs to find joy in praising and worshiping him. And so when we, when we are seeing this text, what we're seeing is experiencing God's restoration. He tells us how that happens. I'm going to give you three points, three specific steps, and they're sequential from this text. So if you want to truly experience God's restoration where you can stand up and praise him, number one is you must recognize the mercy of God. This is where it starts. If you want your life to change, if you want true healing, if you want to really stand up and praise God and walk in obedience and have a restored soul, it begins right here with recognizing the mercy of God. Nehemiah 9, verse 6 through 37, is one prayer. 
a prayer offered up by the Levites, those that were leading there spiritually. It's a prayer of praise to God, but it's a prayer also of confession over their sin. And so this is in just one text in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, it is the fullest summary of the entire Old Testament storyline. So when you read Nehemiah 9, 6 to 37, you are reading God's story of salvation. It's all right there, poetically, beautifully displaying the glory of God. And so these distressed and guilty and sinful Israelites desperately needed something. They needed to be reminded of how their God is merciful. You know, their God is willing to rescue them from their own sin, but also from God's own judgment that they deserved. So this prayer here in verse 6 begins with, it, with recounting how amazing God is. In verse 7 it says that he called Abraham. This is that he chose God sovereignly elected. He chose Abraham. And God chose Abraham, not because Abraham deserved it. Abraham was lost in paganism and idolatry, and God lovingly, sovereignly chose him and said, I'm calling you out of your life of idolatry to come know me and to live for me. And God graciously gives Abraham promises. He says, I'm going to bless you, and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed with one of your descendants. And he promised him that he would have a, a good land as an inheritance. All of it points to Jesus. But this is where it began, calling Abraham. And in verse 8, it says that God has kept his promise. God always keeps his promises. But then the story continues with Abraham's descendants. Through Joseph, who goes there first, then all of the rest of God's people go to Egypt and they live there, and they're safe, and they don't die because of the drought and the famine. But many years later, they're enslaved. And what does God do? He raises up a leader, Moses, and he saves them. He rescues them. He redeems them. He liberates them from their slavery because the price was paid with the Passover lamb. So you see more of God's mercy to free them from their slavery. He takes them out into the wilderness, and he protects them. He gives them a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he rains down bread from heaven and he gives them water from a rock. And he takes care of them and they rebel and they don't trust God. And so they have his judgment for 40 years in the wilderness and God still took care of them. Raises up a new leader, Joshua. He leads them into the promised land. And they defeat the enemy and they have victory. But then they still don't obey God. And they continue to rebel and to not obey God. And so he sends judgment. You go into the era of the judges. And there's a cycle of them being disobedient and judgment. And then God is gracious, raises up a judge, a deliverer. And, and then for a season they're obedient, but then they fall again. It's a constant rebellion in God, constantly showing grace over and over again. And through the kings, the same thing. The judges... The kings, all of history is pointing to our failure and yet God's mercy. Let me read to you just a sampling of this prayer. It is astounding. 
Let's read verses 16 and 17, and we'll read some selected passages that show God's story of salvation, Nehemiah 9, 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, they said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. And you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. You jump down to verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. In the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. According to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Verse 28, after that, they had rest. They did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Verse 30, Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. Verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all of the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all of your people since the time of the king of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Or we read earlier, verse 36. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us before because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. This is powerful. We see a glimpse of the history of the people of God. Sin and failure. That is our history. This is who we are. We sin and we fail. This history that we're recording here is a thousand years of history. Read it in a couple of minutes, but it's spanning ten years. Centuries. Why do the, Le- the, the Levites, rather, why do they focus 
on this millennia worth of failure. Because in their day, in the 5th century B.C., they were in the same situation as their forefathers. They're not just blaming their forefathers. They're saying in verse 33, we, not they, we have acted wickedly. They needed to know how God responds to his people when they fail. And we need to hear the same message afresh on this Friday morning. How does God respond to his people when we fail? God responds with mercy. God is not a man. He is eternal and glorious, and he displays that glory through his undeserved mercy. And we see this cycle of failure, mercy, failure, mercy, failure, mercy. And I praise God that one day this failure, mercy cycle will end. This will not go on for eternity because our Father in heaven will complete the redemption that he has already begun when he sent his son. He has begun a redemption and he's faithful to complete it. He will. And day of Christ when he returns and he is really going to return, there will be a day where you and I will sin no more. And this cycle of failure and mercy will end and will only be praising and glorifying our God. And so this day of, of failure will soon be over. It's going to end. But until that day comes, we continue to fight. We continue to wage war against our enemy and our own sinful desires that are in us. By the power of his spirit, with our hearts knit together, and with our arms locked together, we truly can advance and we can see the borders of our king's kingdom expand to see more people enter in in love of the king and, res- and reflect his glory. See, what's happening is we are gazing upon our king and his spirit works in us to change us, but it all begins with his mercy. Nehemiah 9 here is prophetic, and it's pointing to a day when this failure, mercy cycle will end, where one day God's going to finally resolve our failure and our sin problem. You see, Nehemiah 9, though, by itself is an incomplete story. If all you read is just this, it doesn't show the ultimate resolution For that, you have to look to the New Testament with the coming of Messiah, with the coming of Jesus. See, God is holy, and he must judge sin, as we see in this text. And yet, he keeps showing mercy to those who deserve judgment. And so how can God maintain his holy standard if he continues to let sinners experience his mercy? Verse 33 says, You have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully. So they're acknowledging God is right to judge them with exile and right 
for them to be in that situation. God has not been mean to them. God is acting rightly towards them. And so this text is crying out for a resolution for how can a holy God who must judge sin, and yet also being a God who is loving and shows mercy, what's the resolution? Well, this all points to Jesus. The death of God, the Son, is a resolution. See, on the cross, God maintained his holy and righteous and just standard with he who knew no sin died for you and me so that we can become the righteousness of God. And so God's holiness is upheld with the perfect sacrifice, and yet God's mercy and love and grace is also upheld with him dying in our place. So God is completely holy and completely merciful. And all he asks is that we trust him in the finished work of Christ on so the cross shows us how much God hates our sin. He hates it, and it had to be judged. And yet, the cross also shows how much God loves his own glory. And God displays his glory by saving you and me from our own evil. Do you want to change? I mean that. Do you really want to change? Do you want to walk in obedience? Do you want healing? I mean, I'm talking mind and soul healing. We have a truly restored soul. The first step here is to recognize the mercy of God towards you. If you don't see God's mercy towards you, if you don't believe this and receive this, then you cannot experience the restoration and the healing that you're so hungry for. This is where it begins, knowing that God loves you. He truly does love you. And in and through Christ, God accepts you with all of your faults and failures and struggles he accepts you. See, only Jesus can fill you. Only he can do it. There's nothing more satisfying than the love of God. And only he can fill us because he made us for himself. See, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus truly is better. Sometimes we don't believe that, and when you're, we're facing our sin, trusting that Jesus really will be more satisfying, believing that I can leave this sin, that I can walk away from it, and that I don't need that anymore to fill me, because I'm going to believe that Jesus really is better, and he really will fill me. That's not easy. But we have to believe that Jesus really is more satisfying. And what does that do? It gives you hope. Knowing that he is better is like fuel for your soul. Fuel that God gives us so we can face our sin head on. And it really can be painful to face our sin 
Because sometimes it can be so deeply rooted in your soul that you, you don't even know how to live without it because you've gone about your life with these patterns and you've just been an autopilot. And it's been a sinful approach. And then by God's grace, your eyes are opened and you see it. You say, oh my God, how could I have lived that way? And you think, well, how, how am I going to even move forward? And maybe you don't even know, but you trust that Jesus is better. That he is merciful and he'll, he'll fill the emptiness in ways that that sin could never fill. Believe me, personal experience, Jesus is better. And if you don't believe that, then you have no hope of changing. This is where it must begin. See, Christ offers us two amazing realities. First, we're cleansed from sin. We're truly cleansed. But not only that, secondly, he gives us new life. We're resurrected spiritually. And so you lack nothing. You see, Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. And so he can resurrect dead feelings. He can resurrect dead relationships. And he can resurrect new character and new thinking and a new life. God is satisfied in us only because he is satisfied with Christ. We are in Christ. Not that we deserve this, but he accepts us because he has accepted the work of Jesus on the cross. And so you know what we have? We have a clean record. It all is paid for with Christ on the cross, clean record. But if all you had was a clean record, then what would happen the next minute? You would spoil it again. So a clean record isn't enough. He's given us a clean record, but then he gives us the power to continue walking in the light. And so it's more than just a clean slate. It's the Holy Spirit that is sanctifying us and that is helping us to truly believe that Jesus is better and his mercy is better. You have to believe this. This is where it starts, mercy. Number two, experiencing God's restoration is respond with repentance before God. And so you have to first see his mercy, but then secondly, respond with repentance before God. In light of their great sin, there was even greater mercy. How did the Israelites respond to this mercy? Verse 38. So because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So then chapter 10 describes the covenant that they just talked about. And what it is, it's just a renewed commitment to really, with all their hearts, obey God, to walk in obedience. And so verse 29 in chapter 10 says that they took, it says, an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord and his rules and his statutes. And so they are committing to live differently and to obey God, making a very public ceremony. 
And so chapter 10 goes on to describe specific and visible ways that their behavior changed. We'll talk about it more in home group this week. But their behavior had visible changes. There really were. Understand this. The Israelites here in this day had already experienced God's mercy. Already. They already belonged to God. So they weren't obeying God's word in order to earn God's salvation. They weren't earning salvation. Can't do that. Only by faith. Through Messiah's work on the cross. So they're not earning. What they're doing is they're renewing their commitment to obey God as a result of, here's the key, as a result of having already received God's mercy. So receive God's mercy first, and then we can respond with walking in obedience. And so there's this desire to obey, a desire to be more transformed because we love God. That's where it starts. God loves us. We love him back. And then we want to obey. His heart, our heart is changed by his spirit. So we want more of his presence, his joy, his glory displayed through our at times very broken lives. So the first step here for all change is repentance. Always. The first step towards change is always repentance. Repentance means to change your mind. Literal translation. So repentance is agreeing with God on what he says about you and your sin. So therefore, this repentance results in a changing of direction, a turning around and going the other way. But we can all believe the lies. Every one of us can believe the lies that that sin would speak to us. Every one of us. Oh, just this once. I can handle it. I'll hide it. No one will know. Everyone's doing it anyway. This can't be wrong if it feels so right. I'll just do it and then ask God to forgive me later. This, this kind of thinking is not repentance. It's quite the opposite of repentance. Repentance is when we detect and then we destroy these rationalizations. That are the, these are leading us to our sin and we, we, we detect them and say, no, I'm not going down that path. So repentance is also not denying your sin. That's not Repentance. Repentance is also not minimizing your sin. And I've been there. So, okay, yes, I have a little problem, but I got this. I can control it. It's not a big deal. That's minimizing. Minimizing also is, sounds like this. Okay, yeah, I have a problem, but it's not my fault. That's just how I am. That's just my personality. That's just how my brain works. I can't be held accountable for that because it's not my fault. That's minimizing. That's not repentance. Repentance is also not self-pity. It's not. Repentance is not self-pity. It's not feeling sorry for yourself because you got caught. That's not repentance. It's easy to use self-pity as a means to further control or manipulate other people. And so you're being all down and gloomy and all depressed 
because you got caught in your sin. That's not repentance. I mean, picture a, picture a husband who's been in an affair and his wife busts him. So he's caught in his affair, right? So now he's lost his mistress. And now he's all sad. He's all depressed. And he walks around the house all gloomy because he lost his mistress. That's not repentance. No pity. No pity. Or picture someone that has just been a horrible friend. Slander, gossip, a control freak, right? And then he's all sad because no one likes me. Well, of course no one likes you. You have to repent. Self-pity is not repentance. It's not. We have to rise above that by the power of God's Spirit and say, no, I will not be in the dumps. I'm going to lift my head and stand up and praise God and own up to what I did and say, God, I am wrong. Will you please help me? No excuses. Help me. Repentance also is not this endless cycle of confession and then continued simple behavior. Confession, but then more simple behavior. So it's like, oh, sorry, God, I sinned. Oops, I did it again. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Oh, there it is again. Oh, God, I, uh, you don't mind, do you? It's, it's good, right? We're, we're good with this cycle of, oh, I'm sorry, but then we go right back to it the next day or the next hour. Repentance ends that cycle. It ends it. See, repentance is the process of seeing our sin the way God sees it. And it results in changed behavior. Repentance has to be visible. It's the evidence. And so changed behavior is evidence of true repentance. But repentance must be holistic. It involves all of you. Your mind. Repentance has to involve your mind. Where you, like, you come to your senses. You look at your sin. You think, I can't believe that I've lived like that. And I hate that, and I don't want that anymore. And so it has to begin in your mind, but it can't stop. There has to affect your emotions too. And God is teaching me this. The repentance has to include your emotion, your repent. There has to be a deep sense of, of sorrow and grief for the shame that you brought upon yourself and the pain you've inflicted on other people. Oftentimes you hurt most deeply the ones that we're closest to. And it's a true emotional response and really sensing that grief and brokenness because you hurt those you love and you've displeased God. So it's your mind, your emotion, but also your will. Repentance is an act of the will where your mind is beginning to change and then your emotions are feeling the grief over your sin, but then your will begins to form a plan of action. You say, well, I'm never going back there again. I've been there, and I want nothing to do with it. I'm moving forward, so I'm going to get accountability in my life. I'm going to put a head of protection in my life. I'm not going to keep this quiet to myself. 
I'm going to bring it out into the light, and I will have a plan to walk in the light. And so it has to be holistic. But we can pretend. We can fake repentance. It's not pretending. Let me give you just here as we wrap things up, and our time is very brief, um, some marks. What does it look like to have true repentance? It's on the screens. One is no rationalizing. And so if you're still rationalizing, then you have not repented. No excuses. No, oh, it's hard for me or my parents or my diagnosis. No rationalizing. Second is genuine sorrow. There has to be true brokenness that you have offended a holy God. If there's no real sorrow, then you have to ask, is this real repentance? Next is open confession. Being honest. Coming clean. No hiding. No minimizing. Accountability. I love this church. I, I can't even tell you how much I love following Jesus with this group of people. How I don't know how much value I add to you, but I receive so much value. I get ministered to when people call me and say, brother, how are you? I'll be sitting down with the brother and he'll say, now you realize that you have this problem. And I'm like, yes, I do. And he says, I'll be praying for you. And then he calls and says, so how is it going? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm working on that. Thank you for reminding me. People who love me enough to get in my grill and speak truth to me. It's incredible. Because as a senior pastor, I need the loving, encouraging, correcting body of Christ as much as you need the loving, encouraging, correcting body of Christ. And I have people in my life that are just God sent. And you need that too. Please open confession. But the next mark is seeking reconciliation. So repentance will propel you to want to make it right with others. If you don't, if you don't desire to make it right with others, then again, have you actually repented? If you want to experience true transformation, healing, and freedom, you recognize God's mercy towards you. You respond with repentance before God. And lastly, here as we close, you respond with trust in God. Trust and repentance are two sides of the same coin. The response to God is trust and repentance. You can't do one without the other. They go hand in hand. And it's the only way to change. We respond to God truly trusting him. Our souls resting in him. No pretending. True change must be real. You can fake it for a while. You can pretend for a little while, but it'll catch up with you. Life and God's sovereignty will catch up with you. We can't fake it. If you're not resting in Christ, then your soul is not restored and you cannot experience the blessing that we're talking about. May we have souls that are satisfied in Christ so that we will then have obedient lives that are restored for his glory. Will you pray with me?
Father, we praise you. Thank you for loving us so much to save us from our sins. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that we can trust you and respond to you with true repentance. I pray that you would change us, make us a people that yearn for you, and that tell others the good news that they too may repent and trust in you and experience the joy that only you can bring. Thank you. We praise you in the name of our Savior and our first love, Jesus. Amen.